X-Ray. And welcome to the Beervana Show. I like it. <laughs> we were just discussing whether to continue to call the Beervana Podcast because we are a live radio show. Well, not live, but we are a radio show as well. Yep. We were live once. Yeah. Sort of <laughs> tragically. <laughs> Spectacularly, fabulously. <laughs> but we are recording from the studios of X-Ray FM here in the Falcon Art Building, beautiful North Portland. We are a radio show as well as a podcast. We go out Thursday evenings at 7 o'clock and maybe some other times they plug us in too. Yep. But I think Thursday evenings at 7 is when you can find us. So if you are listening to this streaming on the podcast and you you just love the old you know, 19th century technology. No, when it was radio, 20th century technology of, of radio. <laughs> yeah, you're getting your, your centuries mixed up there. <laughs> well, I mean, it was pretty early probably, right? Anyway, uh, yeah, that was a long time ago. Uh, so uh, this is the Beervana show now. Yeah, it is. <laughs> so let's, let's call it the show, man. All right, we are the show. So welcome to the show, Jeff Allworth, author of several books, Beer Bible, Widmer Way, Secrets of Master Brewers, and others. And others. And others. I'm deep, deep, deep into uh, the final work on the current uh, Beer Bible, which will be out next year, maybe 14 months from now. The Gospel uh, the gospel According to Pliny the Elder. Hey, you're wearing a Pliny the Elder hat. I, I am. Did you see the news that they discovered a skull that they think, but probably not, might be Pliny the Elder? That's one of those too-good-to-check things. They should just <laughs> throw exactly. it in a museum and say it is. <laughs> I didn't even read beyond the thing. It was just uh, it was just the picture of a skull. Apparently, Mount Vesuvius was the death of was the was the doom of Pliny the Elder. Oh yeah, that's right. And that's right. Uh, so you know, there's lots of dead people there, and right. lots of bones. And this skull, some people think, is Pliny the Elder, but apparently, only a few people think that. Right. And many others think not. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I get I don't know how you ever find out. Yeah, uh, this hat uh, came from my lovely and talented wife Sally, who was in Santa Rosa a couple uh, of weeks back, and uh, for an entirely unrelated uh, event. And uh -huh. of course, that's where uh, Russian River is, and and so she went down there and had some nice beer and bought me this hat. I wonder if is Plenty of the Elder still a thing in terms of like people lining up and. This is an amazing thing. Funny you should ask. Yeah, uh, well, that's why I'm here. Yeah, uh, <laughs> they have like 20 taps. You know, typical setup. They have. Yeah. Two devoted to Pliny the Elder uh -huh. because it, it's pouring so fast, so fast and furious. <laughs> you have two taps. Wow. Yeah, yeah, it's still the thing. Okay, well that's good to know. Yeah, uh, I haven't had it in a long it's, time. I bet it's still a very good beer, right? You know, it's a world classic. It is. It is a fantastic beer. Uh, IPAs have moved on in terms of their evolution, but it is a perfect beer. And so, and it is kind of the brewery's thing. It's like Orval. You know, beer moved past Orval too. But come on, it's yeah. still a world classic. You still go down to. Southern They'll always Belgium. need to make that, yeah. Yeah. So. That's funny because there's not a lot of breweries that have that. Like the one beer they'd always have to make. Woodmer, I guess, always has to make Hefeweizen. But that's not even their Hefe, sorry, Hefeweizen. There you go. Sorry, Hefe. Rob. Hefeweizen. Hefe <laughs> uh, but that wasn't even their, their original. I suppose Planet of the Elder wasn't their original either. But there's very few brewers, I think, that have that one beer that they can never, ever not make. Yeah. I mean, there are, you know, brands like uh, Deschutes where... They have Blackbeat Porter, and they'll make that forever. But it is becoming a declining percentage of the sales, and yeah. so it's a it's a nostalgic product that they're proud of, and rightly so. But it's no longer the workhorse for the brewery. Yeah, they don't have two taps boring <laughs> when you head down to the brewery. Uh, yeah. Anyway, we should get back to this because I haven't introduced you. You're Patrick Emerson. You're a professor of economics uh, at Oregon State University. I am, 
and you're hot in the thick of things right now, I'm guessing, down there in yeah, Corvallis. Week, week seven in our quarters. So right. we're week seven into a 10-week quarter. So the, the, the finish line is, is coming up. So as a professor, I'm getting more and more excited. As a student, you get more and more stressed out because that means like your term paper's due and right. the final's coming. So uh, I do feel for, for those poor students, but um, it's nice to be on the other side. Yeah, it's the You know, I was in school good. for so long. I was just telling my son this, who was complaining about having to go to school. And I said, you think, you think that's bad? I chose to go to school for 26 years. Wow. <laughs> but I do wow. remember the day in graduate school when I sat for my very last exam. So that means you were in higher education longer than you were in K-12. Uh, yeah. Okay. So I'm kind of fudging a little bit. Uh, that was the from the beginning of school to the when I finished. And I did actually have a couple years off in the middle. Okay. But, uh, but let's see. Uh, my higher education was four years of undergraduate, two years of a master's, and then six years to my PhD. Okay. There you go. So, yeah. Ten years. You were, you were slogging. No. No. I can't do math. 12 years. Yeah, so, 12 yeah, years, 12 years. But I do remember, that I remember vividly the day that I sat for my last exam and I thought very uh, gleefully that this is the last time I'll ever have to take an exam in my life. And but then you became a professor and exams are now very much your life. Well, so. now I just sit there laughing, ha ha ha, when, I when the students are sweating taking my exams. You're no, actually exams suck because then I have to grade them. Exactly, <laughs> and yeah. And grading is far worse than anything I ever did as a student. Grading, would, grading is the worst. I would grading think so. Pits. But I'm too, I'm too, I, I, I just, you know what's funny is students now are totally used to multiple choice exams uh-huh. and they actually prefer them. Uh -huh. But I'm still of the age where multiple choice exams were just the worst and they were just a cop out if you were a, if you were a professor. At least that's what I thought as a student. Uh, so I don't, I don't give them very much. But you know who really likes them? And this actually has given me pause because I give like these short – like I just gave an exam that was short answer, short essay. And it really disadvantages foreign students, non-native English speakers. Sure, sure. Uh, and it's hard to know what to deal, how to deal with that. Um, I, I tell them just to sort of express the stuff however they can. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they actually really like multiple choice qu questions because they can, it's, I, you know, it's easier for them to just read and kind of figure out, okay, yeah, this is the right answer. So yeah, I don't know. Times change. It's nice to have a multiple choice question on the Scantron. Ooh, boy. I totally. Can, then I you're done. Great in three minutes. Yeah. Everything's done and off I go. And we go, should, have, go have a beer. <laughs> we should throw that open to all the uh, professors out there. What do you do? Yeah, how do you, how do you feel about that? So Yeah, or even more, all the youngsters out there, like what do they, how do they think about multiple choice versus versus essay exams. I always like to have the opportunity where I could just express stuff the way I want to express. Besides, I was always... A All you students who are over 21, of course, yeah. listening to the podcast or show. <laughs> Wait a minute. You're not allowed to listen to our show if you're under 21? I'm sure that no one does. Well, in Germany, in Europe, for most countries, it's okay. You can listen to us. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, if you're 16. Oh, I, did, I did it again. I forgot to start the thing. All right. Uh, I should. I should... I should uh, say this before we get going too long, but before we get started, well, we already started. We now that we're started, <laughs> we'd like to thank Breakside Brewery for sponsoring this episode of the Beer Vana podcast. You can find them in Slabtown, Woodlawn, in Milwaukee, Oregon, or at breakside.com. And that was pretty good. That was pretty good. Yeah. And uh, uh, again, Milwaukee is a suburb south of Portland, so don't be confused. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Now we're going to Milwaukee, Wisconsin. <laughs> Although maybe soon they'll be there too. Uh, and Slabtown is is a, just a little, is it an official moniker now? 
It is official. It's actually historic too. Do you know where? Do you know where the name Slab Down comes from? Comes from. Well, I know there's a bunch of slabs of concrete because of the trucking companies out there, but I don't know what Slab Down comes from now. Uh, back in the day, it was the poor neighborhood. Yes. And there was a mill, wood mill nearby. Ah. As there were probably many wood mills in Oregon at the time. Yep. And the poor would go and get the uh, leftover uh, wood. Ah, slabs of wood. Slabs of wood. Would Smack them on the side of your house and... Uh, they actually burned them, so they would stack oh. them outside their house. <laughs> uh-huh. And so there were all these slabs of wood in front of uh, all the houses. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So. You know, it wasn't that long ago when my father first moved to Portland in the early 80s, like 1981, there would still be, we've talked about this, still be log rafts that would float through the middle of town. Down, oh, I saw down, those. Down yeah, the Willamette. Those. So they were still there by the late 80s probably, right? Yeah, yeah. they were. Yeah. Yeah. That's Indeed. too bad. I like that. I really miss that. <laughs> I miss the big <laughs> log rafts uh, going through the middle of town. All right. Well, we should maybe move on. Yeah, maybe so. Do We haven't talked about the weather, though. It was a nice languorous wind-up there. The weather is amazing outside. It's, it's true. Been third, three days straight of beautiful, sunny, cold but sunny, clear weather. It's slightly misleading, though, because it's a little bit windy uh, and windier than people think. And when I get on my like, bike, it's oh. like, oh, man, look at that sunshine. I'm getting out there on my bike. And... Um, it's pretty windy, especially when you're headed towards the gorge. The further I, get, the closer I got to the gorge, the more that wind yeah. was blowing. Last so. night, I took my son to his soccer practice that was that's up in Vancouver, and it's uh-huh. kind of on the side of the hill, more more towards Camas. But yeah, you get those you get those gorge winds, and it was cold. Yeah, standing there. yeah. Uh, okay, so now we've done the weather. Good. Now Excellent. we now we move on. <laughs> 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 All right, let's talk about beer. Yeah. Uh, on today's podcast, we're going to look at a style that breweries make with more regularity, but one that is mostly sailed under the radar, mixed fermentation saisons. These beers, made with a combination of regular fermentation combined with wild inoculation, have great depth and complexity, but are balanced and approachable. They may be the most accomplished beers made in the world today. We're going to talk about the history of wild yeast, how modern breweries developed these beers, and of course, taste a couple examples. All that next, but first... The news. We learned some sad news recently when Carol Stout, one of the country's first women brewer owner, uh, brewery owners and brewers, decided to retire and shut down Stout's Brewing in Pennsylvania after 33 years. Oh. Yeah. In a press release, uh, she wrote, this was a difficult decision to make, but we're not moving enough volume to justify the expense of keeping the brewery open. However, we're not closing the doors to any business opportunities that could help the Stouts brand live on. Uh, the brewery produced just 2,400 barrels in 2018. Wow. And uh, that's kind of a sad thing because it is truly one of the founding breweries in the, in the country. And she is kind of a legend and, you know, not so many uh, women back in the 80s doing yeah. that stuff. And she, the cool thing is she was the brewer too. She was the one who kind of led this charge and learned how to brew. Her husband supported her, but she was the she was the show. So, Do you know how much beer they were making at their peak? I don't. Um, you know, they, they, they may have punched above their weight because I was aware of them out here in Oregon uh, by the late 1980s. They were a really important foundational yeah. brewery and they were winning awards. Yeah. And, and so I was aware of them. But yeah, 2,400 barrels is almost nothing. So Yeah, it really is brew pub style. Yeah. So. That's too bad. We're starting to lose a lot of these legacy. Yeah. Now we'll call them legacy craft brewers, right? That's right. And she is in that same situation. We've talked about some of the other breweries where she's just ready to retire. And, uh, you know, it was labor of love. And and if there's not someone to pick up that baton and carry it forward, then, you know, time to shut her down. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because uh, 
I'm wondering whether, you know, restaurants come and go and we get sad when there's been a restaurant that's been around and restaurants don't often last 33, 33 years and a restaurant right. that, that's shut down after that. But there's a little bit more of a connection, I think, to uh, to a brewery just because you don't actually have to have gone there. You, the beer gets out and around and it becomes a bit of, you know, part of the zeitgeist, I suppose, of the local local beer culture, right? And it's a little bit something different than just a uh, restaurant shutting down. Anyway, just thinking about my old restaurant model of <laughs> brewing. So. Yeah, I think some restaurants don't have much connection and they come and go and you don't pay attention. There are some of those, some restaurants that are uh, you know, yeah. buried deeply into the emotional heart. But even your city. favorite restaurant you go to, uh, you know, once a month or something like that. And, you know, your favorite beer you've got in your fridge the whole time, all the time, right? And True. it's just sort of present in your life. I'm not going to argue. Yeah. All right. So uh, in similar news, another 1980s era fixture of lager brewing was acquired last week. Milwaukee's Sprecher Brewing, founded in 1985. An investment group in Milwaukee, this is the Milwaukee in Wisconsin, by the way. That's right, the other Milwaukee. <laughs> was the second Milwaukee was behind the purchase. Uh, precipitated, like stouts, by the retirement of the 73-year-old founder, Randy Sprecher. The brewery had fallen on hard times recently, declining from 25,000 barrels in 2015 to just above 9,000 barrels in 2018. Oof. Yeah. That's, that's precipitous. Not sure where they were in 2019. These stats came out. You know, it just happened at the end of the year. So it, we it, don't have 2019 figures yet, but probably did not have a big rebound. Yeah. But in a three-year stretch, they went down by two-thirds, right? Yeah, exactly. Oof. Yeah, it's tough. Uh, and that's a brand, I don't know if you remember from yeah, Badger Days, but absolutely, yeah, totally me too. And it, it was one of the brands that weirdly, uh, Art Lawrence had a connection to at the Oregon Brewers Fest. And uh -huh. so you'd see Sprecher often, right. uh, and they yeah. made these wonderful lagers. Uh, a lot of times they'd send their Bach out and, uh, yeah. yeah. In fact, you know, when you go and you see all of the, he's got all of the old like flags or banners from, from the very early, uh, Oregon Brewers festivals strung up under the tents and Sprecher's always there. It's one of the ones. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. And of course, <laughs> they the have ones. full sail Sprecher. They have the, the classic uh, German Gothic font yes, for the Sprecher. Yes, uh, exactly. <laughs> very reminiscent of, of Wisconsin and Milwaukee. So. Yeah. All right. The, the last one I, I threw in here because uh, I wanted to respond. So uh, I will read it now. Uh, a bit of news that isn't exactly recent, uh, but was new to me at least, and uh, perhaps you too. Uh, if elected, Bernie Sanders has announced that he will use uh, the executive order to legalize cannabis by removing it from the Controlled Substances Act within the first 100 days of taking office. So if that happens, cannabis could be legal nationally in 14 months. Wow. Uh, which I think would be kind of a seismic shock uh, for a lot of ways, but certainly for the beer industry. Now that he's a front runner, we can <laughs> yeah, talk I mean, about it. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's such a, uh, you know... Uh, you know, politicians say stuff and will he fall through and all that stuff. But, yeah. but I mean, I think it's not an inconceivable prospect uh, based on where he is in the, the election cycle and, and everything. So first the control, the, the, you can do this by executive fiat. I guess you can. Um, no one has challenged it. So maybe so. I think so. <laughs> in this, in this it, era of increasing executive uh, authority. Um, yeah. Especially that. Who knows? Yeah. Um, but it, it would just be a kind of a shocker, and I think it would be a regulatory uh, red ball, uh, to use a term that David Simon popularized uh, in his wire and homicide shows, uh -huh. uh, <laughs> where you have something uh, that really creates a big ruckus and uh, everybody has to respond to. So that, yeah, anyway, that would be that would be something. And I wonder how beer would handle that to have 
a whole bunch of states all of a sudden have legalized. It, it would be something, but uh, but I guess if we if if Oregon is a petri dish or a test case, uh, I would say that. I mean, the jury's still out. We don't know exactly the interaction between the the cannabis market and the beer market, but certainly it hasn't cratered the beer market. We know that. Uh, yeah, it hasn't in Oregon, uh, where we had a very mature beer market. But I wonder what happens in Kentucky. You know what happens in some other states, and especially you have international, or you have at that point you have the prospect for interstate commerce. So sure. it becomes uh, bigger. And, I don't know, but yeah. I still suspect that it's more of a complement than a substitute. You do. I do. Wow. Yep. And that is that based on the the nothing. stats instinct. Based okay. on nothing. Based on, <laughs> uh, I just it's just two different things. I mean, you know, I was thinking about this actually. We were, we did seltzers last time, um, and to me, it's just two different things. Like you, you drink a seltzer because you want alcohol, right? Well, maybe I mean I'm, I won't speak for everybody, but based on my short experience with seltzers, they seem just basically an alcohol delivery mechanism. Absolutely. Otherwise, you'd have a Lacroix. Yeah, and and you know, and you're sitting around. Uh, chatting with your friends for an evening, uh, there's something different about having a glass of beer and enjoying the beer and, and it's complex and interesting. And it's kind of the same thing for me with cannabis. It's like you t- have cannabis because you want to get high, uh-huh. right? Full stop. Uh-huh. Uh, and But that doesn't, you know, s- then what, right? right? So the idea of, I mean, to me, the beer is something that you're just like you're, you're living with and it's, a, it's a, something that you have you know, you drink beer for a couple hours with your friends and things. So I, I don't know. That's that was my my take. I think especially true with craft beer. Well, your your instincts on this, I think, are a little bit more informed. So uh, I tend to. <laughs> I don't know. I'm also a little less. Um, I, I was very cur- curious as a parent of two teenage boys, like wh- what the cannabis market in Oregon was going to do to that whole sort of adolescent crazy scene. And I still can't tell you exactly, but certainly it hasn't been a, an apocalypse. And yeah, I think that it's all. It, I, I do think that probably teenagers are using a lot more cannabis. I think that's probably true. But really, I, but I think they're probably using a lot less alcohol. I'm I'm and, surprised about that because through regulation, it, it seems like it might actually make it harder to get a hold of. It's possible, uh, but I don't think so. Uh, yeah, <laughs> because teens because know before, how to get stuff. yeah, I mean, well, first teens would have to go to to the legal uh, sellers. Now uh, it was still technically an illegal seller, but they just got to get someone who can buy it legally to go get it for them at the corner stop shop. So I just think it's around much more. Yeah. I suppose, uh, beer was illegal for, uh, 16, 17, 18 year olds (laughs) when I was a a high school student and I, and you know how you got around that. And, uh, and it's possible that I didn't have beer. Uh, Yeah. uh, Uh, By the way, we're not officially condoning any underage consumption of any substance that's regulated by, but teens, you're right. Teens are Wiley. So, so I, my point was just that I don't actually think that's necessarily a bad trade-off. If drinking less alcohol and consuming more cannabis, probably a healthier trade-off for kids. But yeah, totally. Yeah, uh, yeah, totally. All right, interesting. All right, so uh, tune in to our our companion podcast <laughs> today in cannabis. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but let's go back to this podcast, which is the Beervana Show. Yes, Sorry, indeed. To go back to this show, which is the Beervana. Po- no. Either way. (laughs) (laughs) And you have it here again. Uh, uh, The term podcast when you talk about our main topic. All right. So why don't you tell us us about uh, mixed fermentation? Yeah. uh, This is a style that is new uh, and kind of, you know, has your sale. We haven't really been talking about it too much. In fact, uh, I I almost, it it almost eluded me uh, as I was writing the beer Bible. And I thought, you know, I need to have a new chapter on kettle sours, which we have talked about, yes, and these mixed fermentation saisons, which 
which are basically modern inventions. They didn't exist. We, I'm going to talk a little bit about the history of right. these beers, uh, but what existed before is not what exists now. Okay. So these are kind of new things. It's a sort of fascinating development in beer and one that is little remarked upon. So I thought, let's yeah. remark upon it. Yeah, not only that, but I think they're kind of under the radar, right? Like I think if you ask most craft beer enthusiasts, unless, unless they're really super enthusiasts, they probably wouldn't know what you're talking about. I think that's right. And it's a shame. And that's another reason I wanted to shed some light on them because I think these are some of the most accomplished beers, perhaps the most accomplished beers being made in America today. Uh, and also really approachable. It's hard for me to imagine that people would not like them. They have the balance and approachability of wine. So I think they're really nice. So, um, so let's talk about them. Yeah. Uh, of course, wild beers have been around for a long time. Yes. Actually, uh, we had a question in the mailbag. Somebody said, what's the difference? I see this word Saison all the time. What's this, you know, what's it mean? You've got, is this like, when you say Saison, are you always talking about uh, DuPont style beers? Or now I see that they're wild ones. What's happening? Right. Yeah. We actually, we disc we talked about this in a few pods ago. Yeah. And it's Many pods ago, I guess. It's what sparked my idea to come back around and give these a serious look. Uh, the DuPont style grew out of this older tradition. If you go back, uh, where, when wild yeast were, were more prevalent. Right. And it, it's likely that a lot of the older, especially Belgian, so this comes out of the Belgian tradition. Uh, a lot of those beers were, uh, the, the brewing process involved a cool ship, mm -hmm. which is a way to cool the wort down. Uh, so after you, uh, mash your beer. Mm-hmm. You have all this really uh, warm liquid, right. uh, and you can either boil it with hops or you can immediately ferment it. Right. And either way, you got to uh, at some point you got to cool it down before you ferment it. And the Belgians put it into this big pan so called the cool yeast ship. Don't, the yeast don't die. Yeah, so the yeast <clears throat> don't get fried because they have to be down uh, fairly cool temperatures. Mm -hmm. And the cool ship would cool the beer down, but it would also allow wild microbes to get in there. Yeah, so it's a, a big shallow bathtub. Yeah, it's a big shallow bathtub. And the brewers, if they then pitched the yeast, fermented it quickly and served it fresh, mm -hmm. would not have very much, there, those wild yeast and bacteria wouldn't have a lot of time to get going. Right. Uh, there might be some lactic fermentation, so it might be slightly acidic, but uh, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't change much. On the other hand, if they were aged, and sometimes these beers were aged, particularly if they were brewed... Uh, Late in uh, the, the winter, they needed to last through the summer, so they'd put them in barrels. Uh, those would tend to then develop those more wild characteristics. But the difference between those beers and the ones that we're going to talk about today are that was kind of a natural process, right. and there was not a lot of control over what got put in there and how it developed. So the flavors would have been um, much more like Lambic-style beers, where you're gathering a rich microflora and right. getting a whole bunch of stuff going on in there right. and uh and then whatever happens happens um there, there were a few other styles too there was lambic which i just mentioned in england uh the world the word bretonomyces i think we mentioned this before comes is a wild yeast that uh is characteristic now in, in these kinds of beers and when it was first isolated um it was isolated from an english stock ale mm -hmm. which is an, a beer that would have been put in a, a wooden barrel in england and, and let sit there and those would have been naturally inoculated, so wild yeast have gotten resonant in there. Right. And when they first isolated those, that kind of yeast, uh, they called it 
Brettanomyces, the British fungus, because <laughs> it came out of uh, the 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 English cask. So right. old old English porters and stock ales had wild yeast as well. But again, it's a kind of more ambient, natural fermentation process, not an intentional one. Although the brewers learned how to work with those so that they were creating intentional flavors working with the wood. Right. But but it was uh, anyway slightly different. Um, and then, then there's the whole Cezanne tradition itself, which comes out of Belgium, and uh, it was a rustic farmhouse tradition, and it's interesting. I'm really hoping we're going to get to talk to Lars Marius Garschel here soon, who's been talk, who's done a huge amount of research about traditional farmhouse brewing that still exists in Scandinavia, the Baltics, and Russia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've been reading the book, uh, which is not yet out, but I have a secret copy. <laughs> um, and it's fascinating to see how little those beers were actually inoculated. The brewers had ways, the, the brewers are making this beer the same way that farmhouse brewers would have made them in the 1700s, 1800s. Right. And they're actually not that wild. Uh, they don't use cool ships uh, so much, um, and they have a yeast strain that will ferment at blood temperature so it doesn't have to get as cold. Right. But they're not especially uh, likely to be tinged with wild uh, yeast and bacteria. So it's interesting. Uh-huh. I think I'm already starting to think maybe we need to update our priors about how wild these old saisons were. Right. Um, in Belgium, they did use the cool ship, and I think that that probably exposed it to a lot more stuff. The, yep. the, the folks that uh, Lars is writing about don't use cool ships, and that's a big change. But um, uh, eventually, uh, in the around the turn of the 20th century, the... Uh, scientists figured out yeast uh, microbiology mm-hmm. and isolated different strains, started creating pure cultures until, you know, around after Pasteur for sure. And it wasn't really until around the turn of the 20th century, the breweries were using pitched cultures. It was all uh, just reuse, repitching cultures. They right. weren't, they weren't uh, isolating lab cultures. So let me make sure I understand. So even back when they were using cool ships, they would still pitch yeast from previous batches. Yeah, in okay. Belgium, they uh, they could do either. So okay. um, the the cool ship was used to cool the wort, and in some cases, it was also used to inoculate, inoculate the wort. So in lambics, Solely. yeah, okay. yeah, there were there were um, there's this tradition around lambic the lambic country in Hoogarden, uh, which is Leuven and and Brussels and and Hoogarden is this area where they made uh, uh, wheat beers. Mm-hmm. And there they did a lot of wild fermentation. And so that's kind of the, the tradition came out of that area. Right. Um, so, uh, sorry, coming back to the turn of the 20th century. <laughs> sorry, pe- pe- I, I, yeah. I'm, I'm the one who derailed you. That's there. all right. People learned uh, how to use yeast and they learned what Brettanomyces was. Mm-hmm. And it basically eradicated it from the world, like except for a few old styles in Belgium, uh-huh. everybody was racing to get this stuff out of the out beer. Out of it, I see. Yeah. So the wild beers kind of died out, uh, and then that's when saisons became Dupont-like. So they were still rustic; they still were made with rustic grains, um, often more uh, either hops that were gathered on site or, right. or you know rustic hops. Um, but they were also pitching the yeast and trying to keep it pretty clean. That was a big, a big feature. And, uh-huh. and uh, there's no evidence going back through the 20th century that uh, uh, DuPont, for example, was making their beer uh, at Soured, even though uh, it's possible that they ha- would have had a cool ship at some point. Right. Um, they, you know, once, once we figured out the microbiology of 
yeast, we got rid of that. So that did, did that mean that for the large to, to a large extent, cool ships went away? Uh, I would say, except for the lambic brewers. Yeah, I would say probably less than we think. Mm-hmm. If you had old traditional breweries, it seems like a lot of them were keeping those cool ships around to cool the wort. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and I and I believe that because I saw that in uh, in Germany. So mm. uh, Uruga still has one. They have this old traditional thing. Talked to old Bavarian brewmasters, and they were saying back in the seventies they were really common. Bottle of chillers and cool ships really common. Right. If you go to the Zweigel region, uh, there's I have I have not been there, but I've seen photos, and they also, they're still using cool ships. Right. I think I think cool ships were actually fairly common. Yeah. Uh, but understanding yeast, uh, people were were right, trying to get them chilled down pretty quick and and pitched pretty quick. So, what's fascinating is it you know then we fast forward all the way to the end of the century, and um, American and European craft breweries were trying to figure out how to work with some of these old uh, traditional wild yeasts and bacteria to mm-hmm. bring some of that character back. Right. But they were approaching it. So originally, they did approach it in the old way. Uh, they would use spontaneous fermentation. They tried brewers tried spontaneous fermentation. Right. They tried inoculation with the wild yeasts. Mm-hmm. But eventually, they came to this new way of making these beers, which uh, I, to my, it, it, based on my reading of history, has never been done before. Mm-hmm. Which is uh, fermentation with regular Saccharomyces. Right. And then barrel aging with selected wild yeast and bacteria to create a palate that you want. And then, and I think this is the most important thing, and this we saw this develop slowly. Uh, breweries develop these kind of in, in increments. Yeah. Uh, first, they, they, they would uh, ferment them with uh, Brettanomyces, then they fermented them with Saccharomyces and, and added the Brettanomyces later. Right. Then uh, they figured out a cool thing we could do is do separate barrels right? and then we can blend these barrels right. and we might even want to blend these barrels with un, uh, unaged beer right? and we can begin to compose the flavors that we want by doing, you know, this complex series of things. And, and then we, we all of a sudden have control over this process like the old brewers in Belgium never would have had. Yeah. And my, my first experience with seeing sort of a master blender in action was when we went down to Corvallis to block 15. And yes, <laughs> and you happen to have a bottle. At the time, I don't know if you would say it was mixed fermentation, but he was starting to use... Yeah, he uh, was the actually the first person I knew in in my experience. I'm sure he was not the first person in, in, in America to do it, but he was the first person I knew to do it. And by the time we visited, he was certainly doing it this yeah, way. So why don't you introduce who we're talking about? This is uh, Nick Arzner, mm-hmm. uh, who is the... The brew the brewmaster down at the block fifteen, mm-hmm. and he made uh, the first beer that I knew that that he did, and I put this in the beer bible. It was uh, one of the best beers I'd ever had. I just, it totally blew me away. Was a saison that he made this way, right? And in the past, when people would make these kinds of beers with Brettanomyces, they were very aggressive. Mm-hmm. The sour was very aggressive. The dryness was very aggressive. The, all these flavors were just very aggressive. But when you ferment with Saccharomyces and get a normal fermentation going, and then add the Brettanomyces, and sometimes they'll add, they'll do separate fermentations with black bacteria to add acidity that way, uh, then you're getting far lower amounts of acidity, and you're getting this kind of balance and complexity that you don't get when you just go with straight wild yeast. Yeah, and this was ages ago. This must have been something like ten years ago, right? That's right. We were down there. He took us down to his basement where he had all these barrels, and um, I hadn't really appreciated the art of blending. That was the moment. 
that taught me exactly what blending meant and what you could do with it. And he would have all these barrels, and this one had bread, and this one didn't have bread. This was new beer. This was a uh, aged beer. And then he would just go around and pull off from from this barrel and that barrel. And it took a lot of uh, instinct to know sort of what flavor characteristics are in that barrel, barrel what clear flavor characteristics are in this barrel, and how, if I blend them, will they come out? And so it takes a lot of a lot of instinct and skill. Uh, and it was interesting because prior to that, I probably would have said, oh, you know, blending's cheating, right? Like <laughs> right. You, just, you brew a single beer and that's it and you got to stand by it. Uh, but yeah, the, the beers that he makes are so complex and so interesting and so well balanced that, uh, yeah, I was won over. Yeah, absolutely. So the beer that I just poured out, is called Willa. <sighs> and this is a beer that he made for his daughter. His name is Willa. Mm-hmm. And he, he made a regular farmhouse beer, uh, which he calls a rustic red farmhouse ale. Mm. And then he, he blended in some of his spontaneous beer, so slightly different. But uh, again, uh, he's, he's still following the same process, but he's getting more complexity by using his spontaneously fermented beer as a, uh, a, to, to back, uh, you know, to blend in. Yeah, when we were there, he had just had a cool ship manufactured. He hadn't started using it yet, but it had a cool ship manufactured for him that he was putting in the basement underneath a big sort of vent that took it took air from the top from the roof of the building down yeah and he, i don't know if that's what he still does but. he he totally does and he makes it an annual beer called uh turbulent consequences mm-hmm. that's his spontaneous beer and it's really nice oh, beer that's really good yeah so this is uh a bo- this was bottled uh just in october and I poured it out. It's kind of close to still, and yes. I think the reason it is is because he's going to. He wants this to develop in the bottle. So the right. idea here is uh, he's he's added this spontaneous beer. So it's got a lot of live cultures, and he's added yeah. living uh, uh, live fresh beer. And yeah. so <laughs> stuff's going to happen. And he wanted to make sure that it was not going to. It pulls out pours out very dark, but when you hold it up to the light, you do get a very nice warm red glow. Yeah, it looks it looks kind of um, like a red. Porter or something. It's very drinkable. It has very nice those sour characteristics. Not really any barnyard, but uh, very balanced. Yeah, I mean, the turbulent consequence is, of course, uh, very aggressive. Not ag- aggressive is the wrong word. He gets a lot of really nice. That somehow the mid Willamette Valley is a great place to make. I bet uh, a nice spontaneous beer. So he gets. The Brettanomyces he has is a very nice, gentle variety. Mm-hmm. But you know, spontaneous beer is you got all the all the microflora and fauna yeah. in there. And it's like <laughs> big, it, big flavors. It's a party. It's a party. <laughs> uh, so uh, we're getting a lot of that additional character here instead of a lab culture of Brettanomyces, yes. uh, which would you know. So and sometimes brewers. The the cool thing is once you once you develop this program, then you can do things like. Uh, have different lots in in different barrels. So maybe you're going to put one in a in a Pinot barrel, and you're going to put one in a uh, you know a, a gin barrel, or you can ferment uh, one barrel with secondary ferment it with uh, Brett Class Sinai, for example, mm-hmm. uh, one one stain of Brett, and then another one with Lambicus or something else. So you're getting slightly different character. Right. The barrels themselves will also provide their own character. So even if you pitch with the same Brettanomyces, you're going to get you're going to get different characters just because of the, the nature of the wood. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's it's a cool – it's a – once you kind of – like it, it's one of those things. It took brewers a second to figure it out. But once they did, all of a sudden uh, the, the, the opportunities were – presented themselves in a lot of ways. And I, I, I 
it's funny. I just continue to every year. I I think about the best beers I had over the last year, and it seems like so often the ones I'm looking at are these kinds of beers. Um, they were the they're the ones that really popped in my mind. Yeah. Um, so to me, these are just amazing beers. Yeah. What I was gonna say, the last thing I was gonna say, just about the whole barrel, the cavern of barrels, is that. You really have to develop kind of a relationship. You were mentioning that each bear will express different character characteristics. Excuse me. And it just seemed like he would really sort of became very intimately familiar with each barrel and he would taste and sort of understand like what fa- flavor characteristics are here and there and and then blend it and beautifully. And this is exa- a perfect example. It's just um, it's sour and it's interesting, but it's not at all aggressive. Yeah. Very easily drinkable. Uh, it's got some very interesting, I was almost feeling like I was getting almost a chocolate note on the nose, but... I might be reaching there. <laughs> no, I think I know what you mean. It's a there's a a deep. Uh, it's probably partly the 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 darker malts he's got mm-hmm. in there, along yeah. with the the acidity creates a kind of yeah. creaminess somehow. Mm. Yeah, I know what you mean. It's very nice. All right, well, we have another one here. So I, I will say, I think uh, I know that. I'm always constantly talking about how great Oregon is, uh, but we have we have a number of breweries who are making these kinds of beers at kind of exceptional levels of quality, and uh, we've had Alex Ganum on the program, uh, and I have one of his beers here. He's from Upright, and the beer that I have is uh, Pathways Saison, mm-hmm. and this is something he makes every year. He has, I think, four barrels uh, that he has going at all times. Um, so he's got, he makes this the same way. It's a Saison. That's a fairly strong Saison. Mm-hmm. And then he puts it into four barrels and then he will make a blend from those four barrels in various uh, arrangements. You know, he'll, he'll taste them and, and right. come up with a blend every year. Right. Uh, and we have um, some pathways here. Uh, this is the kind of newer batch. The one that came before this was crazy good so i I haven't had this one (laughs) i haven't had this one all right well let's see what he's come up with this year i actually considered uh our our sponsor uh breakside brewing has they're so famous for their ipas that people are not so aware that they have their own uh sour program and uh i considered grabbing one of those beers but i didn't so there's a lot of breweries who are making these and i think one of the things is you know you Yum. <laughs> uh, you brewing brewing techniques when they're shared among different brewers uh, raise everybody's level of, of information. So right. they, they share these kind of techniques, and people go talk to folks like Alex and see how he's doing these things to uh, create these flavors, and then they can reproduce them, and then they learn something. And it, this this collaborative kind of sharing of information really creates. Uh, a sophistication, a fast sophistication. You've actually talked about this, this economics thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We call this the um, uh, economic geography, or we talked about clusters as well, sort of the same idea. But yeah, just the, the, the proximity matters a lot. And then having this sort of, uh, I don't know, a scope of, of breweries around, you know, there's uh, one or two probably isn't enough to create this whole sort of shared knowledge. But there's so many breweries around that, yeah, very quickly people... People take new ideas, try new things, share that, and and uh, you see this the whole community just coming out with um, uh, much probably much faster than they otherwise would come out with exceptional beers and and start pushing this uh, these techniques. Yeah, totally. Ooh, that smells really good. It's really good. One thing I'm reminded of uh, in drinking this beer is that 
an advantage this style has over other uh, wild beers is because uh, you you're uh, able to work with uh, Saccharomyces yeah. to begin with. Mm-hmm. You can modulate how much sweetness you leave in the beer depending mm. on how fresh the beer is, and a lot of them have much more residual sweetness to kind of buoy the whole thing yes. than you find in it, you know like dry bone dry lambics or uh, beers that are fermented with primary fermented with retinomyces. Yeah, and that's certainly true of this one. Yeah, it really is. It's, this one pours out sort of a classic saison. It's straw to amber colored. It's uh, fairly effervescent, although it doesn't raise a big head, but there's still a lot of a lot of uh, uh, CO2 in suspension there. <clears throat> and it there's has a little nucleation point in the middle. That's pretty cool. That's <laughs> <little>. true. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. It's, I, I think it must have been bottle aged for a long time because it didn't uh-huh. pour out with a big head, but it's clearly got a ton of carbonation inside. Yeah, it just so keeps bubbling up there. <laughs> I think that that typically means that you've got uh, an integrated uh, carbonation going on mm-hmm. where the the CO2 is bound up in the liquid matrix. Mm, that's really good. Yeah, so this has some sweetness. Mm-hmm. Um, it is, I would, you know, it, it's one of those things where it would probably be listed as a sour beer uh, mm-hmm. on a menu and it would it would really mislead, and yeah. frustratingly so, because it's as sour as uh, Pinot Gris, right? It's not, right. It, you know, you don't call wine sour, yeah. but uh, it has a wonderful spine of uh, restrained acidity that uh, really livens everything up. Yeah, but that's a really good point about the um, the residual sugar. And, and it has sort of a, it has that balance and a little bit of fuller, fuller mouthfeel mm-hmm. than, than, than maybe, you know, some really dry saisons. Yeah. <clears throat> and so it, it sort of presents differently, but, but in a way, you know, more appealingly because it's, it's kind of fuller and, and uh, a little bit sweet. Totally. One, one big thing a lot of breweries are doing with these is oh, doing this whole process, going through this whole process, and then adding fruit. So you see a lot of them with, with fruit. Makes I wanted sense, to get yeah. a couple that were uh, a little bit more straightforward examples. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, other interesting thing that I'm starting to see a lot of, and I had a, I was at Von Ebert on Monday, and uh, the this was a, the perfect example of this, is people are starting to use grape must a lot uh-huh. because these things have a very wine-like profile. Yes, they do. So people are starting to add a lot. Uh, commonly here, at least in Oregon, where we have a lot of wine grapes, uh, they're adding, they're adding. Uh, I think it was Chardonnay to this beer called, uh, Von Ebert beer called uh, Bouquet Blanc, and uh-huh. it was crazy good, too. Again, <laughs> another one of those I considered trying to track down a bottle and bring it in, but... Um, Again, it has wine. So, so let me ask you a practical question. If listeners are interested in finding these beers, how do they, how do they seek them out? How, what's the, what's the nomenclature that's growing around these beers? Yeah, there's not good nomenclature, and that's a great question. Um, the in, you, I, I call them mixed fermentation saisons, which right. I think is the kind of common way that brewers refer to them. It's it, it, it's not a it, it people don't necessarily know what that means. Mixed right. fermentation is a weird. Uh, uh, descriptor. Yeah. And a lot of times they won't call them anything at all. They'll have a barrel program and they'll just say, uh, you know, let's see, let's see what we got here. Upright calls theirs. Um, uh, they don't call it anything. <laughs> Block 15 calls it a wild farmhouse ale. Oh, they do. I'm sorry. It's pathway saison. So they do call it a saison. Mm-hmm. Um, but they don't, there's, you know, it, it does not, um, Nowhere on this bottle does it say how it's made or that it's barrel yeah. aged or that it has wild yeast. Yeah, Block 15 does. Block 15 is very descriptive. This they red, are. This red, 
This rustic red farmhouse ale was blended with a portion of spontaneously fermented turbulent consequence uh, and matured for 11 months in red wine barrels. A portion of past blends will be added to the current batch and then bottle conditioned with honey. Uh, yeah. Yeah, you kind of have to know what you're looking at. I think the breweries <laughs> recognize that it's uh, difficult to describe and so they don't uh, go into great detail. So. Yeah. You're they gonna, probably, probably also don't want to put people off, too. That's right. I think that's right. They want to coax them in. Yeah. Because I think, <laughs> from my palate, it's, it's hard for me to imagine anybody who likes beer who would not like these beers. So they seem they seem like real crowd-pleasers styles to me, personally. But um, but I don't know. They, I'm not sure that they're uh, making anybody rich. Uh, so I don't know. I'm not sure how you find them. But... You, yeah, do because they're really good. Yeah. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna stop here for a second. Uh, we mentioned Breakside a minute ago, but I have to uh, say before we go any further that we'd like to thank Breakside Brewery for sponsoring the Viravana podcast. In 2020, Breakside is celebrating their 10th anniversary with a series of collaboration beers, including SoCal Pilsner with Hood River's Freem Family Brewers. We know those. Yeah. SoCal is not an IPA in disguise, but a traditional lager using Northwest-grown strata and mosaic hops. It features classic lager, lager crispness with a light tropical notes, citrus, and berry. Uh, that one's only going to be on draft, by the way. That sounds... that's, that's right. So what they're doing is they're doing uh, two collaborations every month for the whole year. Oh, cool. One of the collaborations they do with a national... Uh, brewery, like not an Oregon brewery, uh -huh. and that one goes into package. Right. Uh, I can't remember if it's a can or a bottle. Um, and then they do a local one, and that one's only on draft. So you got to find this one only on draft. And I'm I'm interested the way they describe it. I have not had this beer, but it sounds intriguing to me. I've always I'm always curious to see if you can use American hops with traditional. Uh, yeah. So this is interesting. I was going to say something similar. Um, these are two breweries that I trust the most to come mm -hmm. out with something awesome. Mm -hmm. So, but typically when I've had sort of the hoppy lagers, yeah, and then especially when you're using American hops, I just have not found them enjoyable that much. Uh, I found it to be a failed experiment. So, but these, if if it's going to work, it's going to work by the hands of these guys. So we'll see. <laughs> exactly, and and if it doesn't work, at least we know they didn't they didn't. Uh, you know, play it cute. They're they're going to play it straight. So we'll see. And if it doesn't, yeah. If it feels too American, then we'll know. Well, it's it feels too American, and I'll still probably it'll still be an enjoyable beer. I have a feeling it'll be good, but yeah. we'll see. Uh, well, should we move on to the Sherpa and uh, we should mailbag? We should. Do you want to start with the Sherpa? Yeah. Okay. I would like to give a call out. One of the one of the, I could just talk all day about all the extraordinary examples of these kinds of beers that I've had. There's a brewery. There's a, there's some breweries that really specialize in these. There's um, uh, a brewery in Goldendale, Washington, uh -huh. uh, that everybody should check out. Where uh, is Goldendale? Uh, you you go Things you go down the gorge past the Dalles oh, and hang that's the left. It. That's it. That's it. Yes. No, yeah. No, I remember. <laughs> uh, and the one I want to highlight uh, especially is in Bellingham, Washington. Called, ah. It's a brewery called Structures, and they make a regular, this is one of the, they, they make hazies. They're really famous for their hazies, and everybody uh -huh. goes there and drinks their hazies, and they've okay. got a huge amount of attention for that. And the brewers love these styles of beers. They intentionally make the hazies because they know that these guys' beers do not make <laughs> so a lot of So that gives them room to make these beers. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, they make a beer called Isolation. Something's got to pay for the barrel age program. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And they knew that going in, God bless them. Um, so they make a beer called Isolation, which is uh, fermented with a DuPont yeast to begin with. Uh -huh. They do it all on um, uh, steel. Uh, maybe maybe huh. they've, they've now had enough 
time to get some barrel age, uh, some barreling barrels in there, but um, right. they were doing it on steel. And it was extraordinary. I, I visited that brewery one time with John Hall, the uh, mm-hmm. editor my, and my friend, and he literally gasped when he tasted <laughs> it. It was that good. And when a, when a person of his uh, experience with beer gasps, you know, it's a good beer. Yeah. So that's that's one I would try if I was up in Bellingham. Yeah. And the bonus is that. Bellingham's fantastic. I love Absolutely. Bell- I love yeah. Bellingham. It's a good beer city. It's a great town in general. Yeah. You have to be choosy when you're in Bellingham because there's too many good breweries. So definitely go to Structures and try that beer. Yeah. There's nothing like a warm summer day in Bellingham looking over the San Juan Islands. Oh. Yeah. It's February. So hang on. Well, I go there in February too. <laughs> By the way, <laughs> have, beer, have beer, hang out in Bellingham. Uh, yeah. Uh, cool. All right. Well, I'll have to try it sometime. Yeah. I've never even heard of the brewery structures. So that's yeah, good. it's right around the corner. If, if people are uh, familiar with the the beer scene there, mm-hmm. um, the original Aslan, uh, mm. it's right around the corner from there. So ah, okay. yeah, they're super easy to hit both of those, like nice. literally two blocks away. So great. Yeah. All right. Let's turn to the mailbag then. We have a pretty full mailbag. Good, we do. Good job, Jeff. Thanks. Thank, <laughs> right. Thanks to the people. Yeah. Thank you, people, for, for populating the mailbag. I appreciate it. Indeed. Uh, so the first mailbag we have is from John McGuire. Uh, John writes, recently I had some friends over to dispense of an eight-year-old vertical I had been collecting from Anchor Christmas Ales from 2012 to 2019. Wow, that's good. Yeah. After being inspired by the podcast episode. Yeah, we, we tasted that, uh, one of those beers, a while back. So, is that right? Yeah. Okay. That 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 is your parenthetical long description of the podcast. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, he then he described the long. Pro- oh, oh the, he described. It. I thought I thought, yeah. I thought this was a pause for you to describe what we were talking about. No, no, no. We we tasted it in the uh, beer de Noël. Ah, right, right, yeah. right, right, right. Okay. So, Anchor Christmas Ales. He's got 2012, 2019. He says, "As for my question, what beer styles besides the usual dark arts types uh, can be cellared without too much risk to them?" I recently saw a post on the Portland subreddit where someone was giving away about 800 bottles of beer they had cellared by pulling one beer from every sixer they had bought between 2012 and 2015 or so. And I wondered how many of these might still be good or even palatable. Yeah. (laughs) That's an interesting strategy, by the way. I'm going to take one beer out and just cellar it for no reason whatsoever. Yeah. So mostly those are probably not going to be good. Yeah, mostly those are going to be crap, yeah. by the way. <laughs> uh, most, most beer is not designed to be uh, to, to be cellared. Thus the giving away of 800 beers. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. You should try to sell them, though. Maybe you can get some rubes who don't know any better. Know. Yeah. Well, there could be some gems in there. Yeah, there could be. And um, So, what, t- yeah, tell us what, what makes a good cellared beer. Well, why don't we, instead of me telling John what makes a good cellar beer, why don't we wait until next week and we'll we'll just... Should we do a whole pod on let's it? Let's do a whole pod on it. All right, John. Yeah. Let's you, let's talk. We have not... You rem- want your question answered. We're going to answer it in 58 minutes. That's right. <laughs> Re- remarkably and weirdly, we've never talked about uh, aging beer. And it's Is that right? That, yeah. Have we not? We have not. Oh. I mean, not. we have not treated it to its own, yeah. its own issue. And it's interesting so. because you're a guy who has a larder. You have, you have a little beer cellar. I'm, one, I'm someone who has not. Yes. No, nothing. In fact, I got sort of fed up with the stuff that was sitting in my basement and I brought it over to your holiday party and gave it away as well. <laughs> I know. And now I have even more, damn it. Yeah. Uh, so we, uh, we're going to talk about that and we're going to talk about how, uh, good cellared beer, uh, it, when the beer works, it's amazing. And mostly, uh, it's not amazing. And mostly you're probably cellaring it too long, but stay tuned for that. 
next week. All right. So, John, this is the, yeah, we are teasing you now. That's so right. You got you to wait for the next pod. But thanks for the question, and you have inspired us. Yes. The next one is kudos, and you're always welcome to send these from Scott Cohen. He said he uh, – I think this came on Twitter. Uh, I could be wrong, but um, – I, I think, by the way, the professional way to do this is to actually have their Twitter handle as well as their name. Good call. Yeah. We'll, we'll do that in future. Okay. Uh, the pot is really coming along, and the last few episodes have been stellar. Congrats, and keep on trucking. Well, thank you, Scott. We Brum, really appreciate that's that. That's very nice. I know. Usually it's Patrick trails off, and he, so yeah. he's really bad at his job. And yeah. Exactly. So I appreciate I'm sure that's still true. I appreciate that. Well, yeah, that's still true. But it's nice, to, it's nice to have a little pat on the back once in a while. Exactly. I'm trying so hard. Okay. Uh, Josh Penansky. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that may be right. Penansky. Uh, Josh is from Wisconsin. Absolutely. Uh, hello, fellow Badger. Josh, how are you going? How are you doing? I also, he writes, I also wanted to write in with my own expired beer experience. Okay, good. A few years ago while living in Iowa. Oh, I'm sorry, Josh. Yeah. You shouldn't have, you shouldn't have done that. Occupied that, that territory. Was, that's the first problem I can <laughs> I was served a Bell's Amber that was packaged in August of 2015. This happened in October of 2016. I humorously snapped a photo and posted it to Twitter, and they responded within a few days, asked where I was served and for my address. About a week later, I received a care package with pint glasses, coasters, and a ton of stickers. I didn't ask for anything, and it was completely unexpected, but it really made me respect the folks at Bell's. Yeah. That's awesome. Way to go, Bells. This we we heard a similar story from uh, Sierra Nevada. So keep keep these coming. It's pretty cool. Yeah, and I think that's it it points out something important to keep in mind that that these breweries don't want their beer mishandled. Right. Don't want old beers served. Don't don't want like bad uh uh, uh tap lines and, and and so on. And and they're really uh you know, they struggle because they don't control the beer once it leaves their uh, facility. So I think it's it's always hard for them. Um, they always want their beer to be treated well. And it's really nice to know that companies pay attention and, and uh, try to do right by their customers. Absolutely. And, you know, Bell's has furious loyalty. And I think this is probably <laughs> indicative indicative of why that is. Yeah. Wait, so way to go, Bell's. Yeah. Way, way, way to do what you do. All right. Well, are we are we ready to outro? I think really? we're ready to outro, wow. man. I know. <laughs> this time, Wham, bam, thank you, man. This one's fly. It Fl- did. Flown by. All right, a few words going out. Once again, we want to extend a hearty thank you uh, to Breakside Brewery for sponsoring this episode of the Beervana Podcast. You can find them in Portland and Milwaukee, Oregon mm-hmm. at breakside.com. Uh, please subscribe to us on uh, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate us. Five stars, please. That helps other listeners find the show. We'd love to hear from you, of course, just like uh, today. We love a uh, nice fat mailbag, so please send your questions and comments to jeff at beervanablog.com. Or on Twitter, you can uh, reach out to us at beervanapod. Jeff blogs. Uh, are we going to have to change that now? It's the Beervana Show. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Jeff. Blo- I, yeah, I'm not sure sure about this rebranding, Jeff. Jeff blogs at nah, Beervana we'll, Blog. We'll keep it Beervana Pod. That'll be all right. Okay, <laughs> and he tweets at Beervana, uh, and Patrick tweets at Beeronomics. Uh, yeah, about once every three months. Uh, <laughs> okay, so we got a cheers now. You got to that. Do you, which so, one do you want? Uh, I will take the block fifteen. All right, I uh, have the upright. You have the upright. All right, cheers, Jeff. Cheers, Patrick. <laughs>